I'm Heidi. And this is Ellen. And we're here to introduce this episode of Remnants of Resistance, Queering the Page and the Nature of Disruption. You're about to hear Dr. Danielle Spratt and CSUN graduate student Jennifer Sams discuss the subversive nature of queering archival documents and reflect on the impact of queer theory in written work through discussions with distinguished guest speakers. The sources they discuss can be viewed on this episode's website, linked from the show notes. And now we'll hand it off to Danielle and Jen. Today, we are speaking about queering of the page and the nature of disruption. My name is Jennifer Sams. I am a master's literature student here at CSUN, uh, pursuing my degree with plans of going on to work as a professor, pursue a PhD, uh, and continue my work in archival studies. And I am Danielle Spratt. I am a professor in the English department where I focus on 18th century transatlantic literature with a focus on 18th century history of medicine, history of science, um, and public humanities more broadly. I'm also the director in the Office of Community Engagement at CSUN. Right. And today we kind of wanted to ground our topic a little bit in some research that I have done personally in Dr. Spratt's class, the 495 BSA uh, Blank Space Archives. Um, we're going to begin our discussion just in how we see uh, queering and disruption happening within those documents. And, you know, before we dive into that, Dr. Spratt, did you want to speak a little bit about that class and the goals behind that class, how it relates to service learning? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I feel like I could probably talk for three hours about this, so I'll try to be as succinct as possible. Um, so the class, much like the sort of overarching theme for this podcast series, as well as for our episode, um, was to think about what's the relationship between the archives um, and um, communities that have long been silenced or ignored, um, and the ways that early career scholars, undergraduate students, early career graduates, graduate students, um, and even community members and people new to the archives can bring energy and voice to areas that have been suppressed or ignored. Um, so we were really lucky in that seminar that we uh, participated in together, where there were a group of, I think, about 18 students total yeah. Yeah. Um, who worked on a range of archival documents held through the library. And I was super lucky to work with Nicole Shibata and Ellen Jaros to think about what the needs of the library were with regard to those archives. So in, you know, hopefully good community engaged research and teaching form, um, we had a lot of conversations across um, me as a faculty member, uh, the librarians and the students thinking about like what issues were important to them and then figuring out ways that we could all collaborate together. And we were lucky out of that class grew a public humanities project last spring funded through the College of Humanities, where we did a little bit more of this transcription work, which will probably come up as we go along also. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, no. And I mean, speaking as the student uh, perspective from that class, I just gained so much knowledge that I otherwise would not have gotten through, you know, my conventional studies towards my degree uh, in which that knowledge really kind of gave me agency to mm -hmm. work with some of the things that I saw as problematic within historical record keeping. So I think that's really where we're, we're kind of starting off with this is, is how we came to understand that. And I think the document that we are first beginning with is really mm -hmm. how a lot of us 
kind of realized how legalese can and cannot work mm -hmm. for marginalized populations. Mm -hmm. um, and so the Nellie Scott affidavit, yeah. Um, you want to speak to that? <laughs> yes, I will speak to it and I will speak to it by um, reading it aloud. And this is an exercise Jen knows all too well. We do this <laughs> with um, any of our um, transcribers that are coming in. So part of this project is looking at documents that have been digitized by the library. So there are photos taken of them. Um, many, especially the older documents, when they're uh, photographed, have what's um, called OCR optical character recognition built in in the process. So it's a computer read um, program that should spit out text that represents what's on the page. But especially for older documents, that OCR is just garbled or totally unusable. And so it really takes the, the labor of transcribers, someone who's looking at the document, sussing out what some of these um, words are, they're really hard to read in some cases. Uh, it's a really great exercise in shared reading, in shared knowledge um, and humility, because it often takes a little <laughs> bit of time, depending on the um, the state of the document and our ability just to decipher abbreviations and things that we don't, we don't normally use. Um, so I will go ahead and read this aloud uh, off the cuff, even though we have transcribed it before, I thought we could uh, emulate the process of what it's like when we look at this document together. So it will be linked in the description to this podcast if people wanna look at the actual document. Um, it's actually in really good condition, which is a, a big picture question that we have about this document. Um, why is it in good condition? Um, it, according to the um, Special Collections and Archives at CSUN, um, you know, came from a, a group of people on the East Coast. And so it also introdu introduces questions of how did it get from where it started to Southern California? Um, some big picture questions about how we access um, these things, which can be um, challenging. And I think one of the things that um, Jen and I really wanted to emphasize in this episode is that all of the work that we did in the archives, even though it wasn't explicitly attached to the concept of querying the text or querying the archives, was fundamentally embracing the methodology of querying the text and querying the archives. And so a big um, goal of this episode is to give you some examples of how we did this in um, the archival holdings that we've been working with, but also to open up the conversation and think a little bit more broadly about what does querying the text mean? How does that work for us as individuals and scholars? And how does that get represented um, across the CSUN community? And after we uh, do a, a brief deep dive into the archives, we are then going to transition into talking to some of um, our colleagues about how they came to this kind of theoretical practice and how uh, they implement it in their teaching and research today. So one of the things that we'll do after we read this is think about um, what it means to read this text um, through queer theory um, and particularly focusing on the concept of queering kinship. Um, and that's something that will come up as we, after I stumble through this reading, which I have <laughs> delayed long enough. So here I go. <laughs> okay, so the title of this document is Affidavit Confirming that Nellie Scott and her children, Robert, Samuel, and John were freeborn October, 1822. 
One thing I want to say about this title, it's long, obviously, but it is um, conforming to some of the best practices in archival uh, transcription and metadata creation, which is that it is naming as many people who are there um, as possible, uh, giving them their proper names and acknowledging um, the existence of a group of people who, as we'll see, were otherwise marginalized in American society um, in this period. So huge props to the uh, probably Nicole and the the other group of librarians who were really deliberately working in anti-racist metadata creation and praxis. Okay, here we go. State of Maryland, Frederick County. On this third day of October, 1822, before the subscriber, a justice of the peace in aforesaid county appears George Butts and makes oath on the holy evangelie of almighty God that Nellie Scott, a mulatto woman now before me, about 42 years of age, about five feet, two inches high with a scar under her right eye is the identical woman who was raised by his father, Jacob Butts, and that he knows said Negro woman, Nellie Scott, to have been born free. That he also knows that the said Negro woman, Nellie Scott, has three male children, also freeborn, viz, or namely, Robert, about 14 years of age, Samuel, 11 years old, and John, seven years old. And then it's signed underneath J.H. McElfred with a large flourish uh, at the bottom. So just pause over those details for a second. <laughs> After we read this as a, as a class or as a group of transcribers, we pause and ask some basic questions of who, what, when, where, why, and how, right? So who are the people involved? Um, it's George Butts, who is the person with legal um, power here, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Um, George Butts is the son of Jacob Butts. And we find out also in this document that Nellie um, has a relationship with both of these figures. And so in teasing out what that relationship might be, in some ways, we're performing the process of querying the text because we're thinking about kinship and the way that this document in some ways might be disrupting um, traditional kinship norms in the 19th century that potentially Nellie Scott's half-brother George Butts is attesting to the fact that she was born free. It's not stated outright, this kinship relationship, but it is, I think, strongly implied based on the details here. Um, and the fact that he is attesting to her status as being free is disrupting a whole um, huge oppressive legacy. Um, and so in reading this, we find um, some some real power in in the archives, pausing over the archives and thinking about how these documents both register a moment in time that often is not um, revealed all that clearly in high school um, or even some, um, you know, college history classes. What did it mean to be a freeborn person at this moment in 1822? Um, and how might people be participating in non-normative kinship structures? The fact that this document is really clean, it doesn't have, it's not folded, 
as far as I think we can tell, it's in really good condition, also brings up the question of, you know, how was it used and to what extent it was used and why um, and why at this moment, because Nellie Scott is 42 years old. So it brings up a lot of questions. But in asking these questions, we're we're effectively performing a queering of the text by figuring out the ways that it's resisting um, power structures that that were at play um, in 1822. Right. And I mean, even the pushback of George Butts, right, Mm -hmm. in in sort of combating that notion of um, everybody complicit within these legal parameters, like this Mm -hmm. was clearly intentionally used to grant this documentation to Nellie Scott. And, And we can kind of infer that from it being so clean, from it being kept Christine, mm-hmm. that it's probably something that she needed to use often. Mm-hmm. Um, and and just that nature of disruption and what agency that gave in the actual moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, when we sort of break into a project that I worked on for you mm-hmm. during BSA, um, this kind of goes counter to the yeah. Nellie Scott, because um, yeah. we are we're now looking at the summon of Richard Pruitt and John Pruitt to appear in court. Um, mm-hmm. That's what we did our final curatorial project on. Mm-hmm. Um, and rather than the one page for Nellie Scott, we have nine pages of rather dense mm-hmm. legalese and um, a fight between property owners uh, about money, economy, commerce. Um, and really what we're seeing is, is kind of the opposite Mm-hmm. of what's going on in Nellie Scott, where, you know, her name, her children's names are sort of brought to the front of that document. Yeah. Um, we we look on, again, you know, this nine-page legal document that comes straight from the legal and financial documents on slaves and slavery in the United States. Mm-hmm. And we look to see how buried the names mm. of the enslaved people were. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, just kind of going on, we chose the piece because it really represented the convoluted legal legal language that we're talking about disrupting Mm -hmm. um, and that commodification that often eclipses the enslaved experience of the time period. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, within this document that we were working on, John Pruitt, Richard Pruitt, all of the names that would have been relevant in keeping or holding property Mm -hmm. are repetitive and you know they appear throughout the document um endlessly mm-hmm. <laughs> but they they really shroud mm. the what they refer to as the six additional hands which mm-hmm. are is the term that they used for the enslaved people in that document and now mm-hmm. out of these now nine pages that phrasing was not used until page three mm-hmm. um and then it's it's not even until page five that they are given proper names. Mm -hmm. So we quite literally saw these people as being buried beneath the minutiae of an argument that focuses solely on capital, um, Mm -hmm. which I think draws right back in to exactly what it says on the collections landing page, that these records document the experiences of slaves as legal valuations, as appraisals Mm -hmm. of estate property, bought, sold, rented, redistributed. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And this kind of trapped them in that description. Um, Mm -hmm. And so 
what we wanted to do with our project specifically because we were creating metadata and because we were kind of creating cur curatorial stopping points is we brought the six hands to the front of the document. Mm -hmm. um, and so we went through the process of finding the exact names um, of all of them. And instead of referring to them as the six hands in our metadata, we highlighted Mariah, Mariah's daughter, Deborah, John, Bill, Isaac, Bill Cross, and Daniel. Mm -hmm. um, the name, that's actually seven, but I, I'm assuming that uh, Mariah's daughter was not counted as the six hands because mm. she could not yet help. Um, right. But what we did then is instead of priming the Pruitt's names is we have those seven names uh, up and, and properly displayed, referred to in terms of humanization mm -hmm. um, rather mm -hmm. than leaving them as terms of debt and loss, mm -hmm. um, which they were really a footnote as something in this legal battle mm -hmm. of property loss. Um, and so what we were trying to do there was take a document that was not like Nellie Scott, the, mm -hmm. that did not offer any flexibility within, you know, the restraints of what these documents could or could not tell us about mm -hmm. marginalized enslaved people. And we just recreated it a little bit. You know, that document still exists. It still buries those people within five pages. But when you go to find that on the collections website, you would now see those names rather than just kind of getting the watered down version of the six hands mm -hmm. in which we're not even sure their names would be fully read. I mean, we right. both know that text is very hard to read. We're talking about old hand script. Yep. Um, and so in that way, we saw ourselves disrupting documents mm -hmm. that otherwise would have remained stagnant. And, right. and so, you know, kind of in an element of, of queering, mm -hmm. we, we used identity and, you know, that, that kind of specification to mm -hmm. really turn the document on its head mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to also make commentary just about the nature of commodity and enslavement. Right. And so I, I, I really truly feel in that way that we were, not able to edit the actual source, but bring something to it that was not there before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for sure, it's decentering Richard and John Pruitt, like white oppressors, um, and centering um, the enslaved people who are marginalized in all ways and contexts, in practice, in description, in narration in documentation. Um, and so, like you said, flipping it on its head to center them and their experience, to give them names, to give them, to recognize their humanity in a way that this document was only trying to do, like you said, insofar as commodifying them. Right. Um, it, it's transformative. And I think it takes the eye and the, the work of early career scholars, of people who have been brought up, you know, with queer theory, with um, decolonial approaches to text and that sort of thing, but also just with a perspective of the 21st century of this moment makes a huge difference in the way that we can engage with the texts and the archives. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's it's largely due to the moment. It's largely due to the conversations we're having about 
critical race theory and and, mm-hmm. and every, everything else that's sort of surrounding the institution. And, you know, for me, I never even thought about it as queer theory until we started mm-hmm. working a little bit more on this project mm-hmm. and realizing how the nature of dis- disruption is inherently queer, how the nature mm-hmm. of disruption of any praxis um, mm-hmm. is inherently queer. And so the intersections really started popping up for me once we started, you know, talking to our fellow wonderful scholars who contributed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just in understanding how this webs out and how this yep. starts in the archives and then goes on to, you know, pages of literature, pages mm-hmm. of poetry, um, yep. pedagogy. Mm-hmm. And now this might be a good time for us to yes. <laughs> introduce. <laughs> Segue into the second part of our, uh, our episode. Um, we were so thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to a handful of our colleagues at CSUN who uh, shared both their formative experience uh, queering the text, um, whether that was as undergraduates or graduate students um, in very different times and spaces and disciplines even, as we'll talk about. Um, And then as Jen was saying, how that affects their research, their creative work, their writing, their teaching um, today. Um, And as we'll see in listening to our colleagues, there's some really... um, energizing and fascinating points of overlap, despite um, our uh, our guests coming from very different um, methodologies, critical, historical points of view. Um, one of the things that's consistent and I think very much um, complements what we were just talking about with the, the two archival selections that we were looking at is the, the way that thinking about embodiment and reading embodiment um, against um, forms of traditional oppression, reading embodiment as a form of resistance is very much um, aligned across these fields, these disciplines, these historical subcategories. Um, So uh, embodiment as queer praxis is, Mm. I think, very much consistent across um, what we'll what we'll talk about, and it made me think so much as as I as we were talking to um, our colleagues and thinking about embodiment. I just kept coming back to that line in the Nellie Scott affidavit about the scar under her eye, yeah, um, and how that that resonates as both an identifier in place of what we would now see today is like a photo, um, a picture ID, um, but also what that scar represents, the resistance that her body was performing by virtue of who she was in her historical moment. Um, don't know how she got the scar, could have been for many different ways, but it it really registers um, so much about um, who she was and what what she faced, um, even as someone who was allegedly free. Um, Definitely. Yeah. So um, we'll just we're so grateful to our colleagues, um, Lauren Byler, who is associate professor in the Department of English at CSUN, um, our resident 19th centuryist Victorianist. Um, Lauren uh, shared with us both her experience as an undergraduate and graduate student, um, as well as some really exciting new work that she has coming up. Um, and she'll say more about that and the inter- just the, the core intersectionality of queer studies and decolonial studies in 19th century um, 
literature and adaptations of 19th century literature and how that I think is really opening up this time period to new audiences through graphic novel um, representations as she's going to talk about specifically as well as um, you know film and TV adaptations in Name Your Netflix, Hulu, mm. BBC series. <laughs> we were really thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with Nikki Eshen Solis, who is a lecturer in the Department of English and Queer Studies at CSUN. Um, Nikki has many degrees in theater, in literary studies, and teaches in uh, both drama and literary studies and theory in the English department, as well as queer studies at CSUN. Um, and we were also really thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with Leilani Hall. And Jen, I'll let you um, introduce Leilani since you did the bulk of the interview for that one. Right, right. Dr. Hall is uh, very well known in the creative writing department. Um, an amazing published poet who you know brings her craft with her to every class that mm. she uh, leads. Not to gush there, um, so but true. we we <laughs> we spoke to Dr. Hall a little bit about um, the intersection uh, intersections of uh, cripping and queering the text, uh, in which we looked at some of her older poetic work um, in juxtaposition with some of her newer work and sort of followed this line of study that she has developed um, in those intersections mm -hmm. in which disruption plays a major role of the positioning um, and agency of the body, mm -hmm. um, you know, both in her older work and uh, in her newer work about motherhood that mm -hmm. that specifically pairs motherhood um, destruction and nature mm -hmm. uh, in conversation with one another. Um, and uh, we we gleaned just a, a very insightful way to kind of view creative writing mm -hmm. uh, through through a lens of querying the text and, and what that means for embodiment as well. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the takeaways that we get from all of these conversations and bringing them together um, in this episode, as well as throughout this podcast series, is the intersectionality of uh, queering the archives and queering the text. So yeah. just as we talked about, like you don't even realize you're queering a text until right. you start thinking about it um, in those terms and how it's so fundamental to our practice of reading. Um, I think we we see that cutting across um, all of these conversations and um, the way that it is empowering for readers. It's empowering um, and revitalizing for texts that have otherwise maybe been forgotten or misunderstood and for experiences that are often overlooked, forgotten, misunderstood, disregarded. Pushed, yeah, pushed yeah. to the periphery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just the the centering and recentering is is crucial and, and just, you know, elemental to the um, the work that that we see our colleagues doing and that we do um, in the archives that we're privileged to have the opportunity to um, to use thanks to the hard work of Ellen Drose and Nicole Shibata and the, the team at the library who work tirelessly to make these documents as accessible and available as possible. And I think that accessibility is also key to um, this whole process in the same way that Leilani will talk to us about um, queering and cripping as intimately intertwined practices, you know, we, we see those connections throughout, I think. So here's Lauren Byler. We only have two questions and you can take this in any direction that you want. The first is, 
what your first kind of encounters with queer theory were or when you sort of um, understood it as a practice in your own experience as a thinker, as a student, that kind of thing? Yeah, so I guess I'd say in a sort of um, semi-conscious, non-systematic way, uh, I did a lot of uh, music and theater when I was in high school, and I started looking around me and realizing that um, people I cared about and enjoyed working with had very different gender and sexual identities from me. So kind of realizing that if these were people I cared about, I should care about understanding their experiences. So um, I'm not saying like I did that in a really sophisticated or, you know, always like super sensitive way, but I think that was kind of my uh, first experience of being like, well, there are a lot of different ways of being than maybe um, I was encouraged to understand or even accept in rural Pennsylvania in the 1980s and 1990s. Formal study of queer theory didn't really happen um, until my senior year of college um, when I got some queer theory in my first literary theory class um, with a wonderful Renaissance literature scholar, Jonathan Gill Harris. And then in the spring, I took a, a queer theory class um, with Madhavi Menon, um, who's now at Ashoka University um, in India. Uh, it was just really wonderful. Everybody in the class was fun. It was a good time, um, intellectually rigorous, but also sex positive. Um, and it was, I think, really in, you know, fun and important to be taking a queer theory class with a woman of color. Um, which gives it a, a different kind of spin than um, certain other kinds of contexts in which you can take queer theory. So that um, kind of launched me into the, the grad school I went to, actually, because I loved the work of Lee Edelman that we read in that class. Mm -hmm. um, just sort of thought it was the most um, sort of stimulating writing, the most difficult writing, the most fun writing. Um, and also, like, he wrote about things like I didn't think you could write about, like bathrooms, <laughs> um, you know, which is kind of silly, right? Because we have the, this, the politics of the bathroom in our country. The bathroom has been a, a site of racial exclusion. It's been a site of homophobia and transphobia. But yet it's something we feel like is not appropriate to talk about in college classrooms or polite spaces, even though the sort of daily necessities of bodily function are, are you know, one of the prime places we put pressure on people to feel um, unwelcome and, and less than human and like they have to go somewhere else to do their business right so yeah, yeah. Um, I, I sort of ended up in grad school not not um, intending to become a queer theory scholar and I really am not I've done some you know publishing work that's involved queer theory but my scholarship largely involves um, 19th century literature uh, that um, thinks about in many ways very normative kinds of, of white girlhood in the 19th century. Um, but nonetheless, the, the things I learned about um, gender from studying queer theory have informed, you know, pretty much everything about what I do um, in my my teaching and my scholarship. So um, I, I guess that's, that's the um, was autobiographical, um, you know, kind of uh, engagement with queer theory, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, and I love that concept of both who's teaching it and who's in the class makes such a difference when you're um, learning about theory in general, but especially queer theory and then thinking about the ways that you incorporate it into both your sort of academic life as well as into your everyday life and how that sort of changes your whole perspective in a really important way uh, in terms of recognizing humanity and in, in others and, and finding it um, rediscovering it even in topics that might seem not as directly related, like 
19th century white girlhood or something like that, that it, it makes it so much more rich by knowing, um, you know, broader kind of theoretical approaches and specific ones. too. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it should not be so hard to sort of recognize and care about and be curious about the humanity and sort of daily practices of people who are different from us. Yet, mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things that's been really useful about queer theory is it's not timid mm -hmm. uh, about um, thinking about sort of daily practices, desires, interests that um, maybe we have been encouraged to think as, um, you know, sort of beneath notice, um, mm -hmm. inappropriate to notice. So I think that's been a, a sort of larger lesson that I've, that I've gotten from all the reading I've done, all the listening I've, I've done in that, that field is to, um, resist that feeling of like, this is not something that I should be talking about, or this is, you know, sort of sub-literary or, you know, sub-intellectual or whatever the case may be that, you know, sort of everything is on the table to, to analyze and to mm -hmm. think about, um, how, um, sometimes our lives are informed by, by practices that we don't even really fully notice. Um, right. Yeah, no, and I think I think it's both that sort of like beneath notice or things that we're taught are not polite or things that that can be talked about. And on the other end of that spectrum, there's the sort of we don't question it because it seems eternal or, you know, grounded in a series of like principles or natural laws that are neither natural nor laws nor eternal. So, yeah. Yeah, the natural, I mean, I think I was just talking about this with students in a Hitchcock class I'm teaching that's informed by psychoanalysis, feminism and queer theory. Um, and, you know, I'm a straight white woman. So in some ways, I, I think that's important to announce that when talking about queer yeah. theory, because I'm not endangered or risking myself in ways that some people are when they're talking about trans identity or queer identity. Um, but I, I think I often feel the queerest um, um, and feel the most sort of anger in classes when I'm I'm trying to um, suggest that students might think about the natural as an ideological construct. Um, yeah. And I've, I've never felt so much sort of... Um, animosity and such <laughs> angry faces sometimes when I'm I'm using things like um you know the cereal that says all natural is to get them to think about like you know this actually isn't really a thing there's no there's no definition of all natural you know yeah. from the or anything just trying to use some of those those um ways of getting into to queer theory um sort of awry right by thinking mm -hmm. about less scary things like our breakfast cereal or our, or organic food and you know its supposed naturalness and you know, that there's nothing that's more a human construct than the, the concept of the natural. And that's, yeah. I think that's something I really register or I see students understanding, especially, you know, queer students who've been told a lot, like, this is not natural, but yeah. there's that, that recognition of, oh yeah, I felt this bludgeon being used against me. Mm. I recognize that. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a kind of relief of a burden to have someone also recognize that this is, this is really, you know, it's, it's a story, um, yeah. it's a powerful story. Um, and it has real effects on, real people's bodies, but it's, it's still just a story. It's kind right. of nonsense. <laughs> right. Right. And there's no, there's the only way we like, let it keep having powers by not continuing to not question it rather than, you know, really addressing it as artificial and contextual, um, and very much motivated by various other entities that are, you know, looking to do bad things to various people <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or just yeah consolidate their their power that they're happy to hang on to right mm -hmm. so you can always point mm -hmm. to we're the natural thing those people are the unnatural so they don't get to have access to all these other resources that we want to um you know kind of hog for ourselves 
Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think this might be a really good moment to transition into talking about your forthcoming amazing article that I'm really happy I had the chance to to read a draft of. Um, But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, about your forthcoming article and the um, both what it's about and then the challenges and difficulties of taking a very canonical, very, you know, um, culturally known um, work and, um, you know, really bringing it into the 21st century with um, methodologies grounded in queer theory. And, and thank you so much for reading that article. Um, it, it's so I, I Danielle is one of um, several friends um, and colleagues who I was like, can you please read this for me? Because, oh, this is a joy. Uh, this is, you know, it, it was a the, kind of the most um, intense revision process I've ever had to do for something that's that, um, been accepted for publication. Um, and it's, it's really exciting. It was accepted in the flagship journal in my field, Victorian Studies. So it, I think it was worth the stress, but it really helped <laughs> to have some other um, really brilliant people um, just weigh in and help me think about little things like phrasing and bigger things like framing. Um, so the the article um, is called Crossing the Line, um, Redrawing Legacies of Racial Representation in Watson and Holmes, A Study in Black. That's a long title, but um, it's a kind of combination of an analysis of some of the original Sherlock Holmes stories by Arthur Conan Doyle, um, and then a graphic novel published in 2013 called Watson and Holmes, A Study in Black. Um, and I'd been teaching and enjoying um, the Sherlock Holmes stories actually since I arrived at CSUN. I'd never read any Sherlock Holmes before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of the avenue into thinking about British imperialism and um, constructions of race in the 19th century. So um, the, the parts of the article that focused on Arthur Conan Doyle focused um, on the, the three major places where he represents Black characters um, and the, the different sort of like very... Um, obvious, grotesque um, racial stereotypes and white supremacy, but then some of the more subtle forms of white supremacy um, that can be practiced through um, this sort of um, what benevolent acceptance of, of otherness and racial difference and mixed into all this, right? Because it might not seem like, well, where's the queer theory in this, but mixed into this, or maybe, maybe it does. Um, the, the Sherlock Holmes stories are sort of um, famously a, a place that has um, uh, made room for or been played, been forced to or been able to play host to um, queer readings for a long time, right? Watson and Holmes. Um, are they are they just friends? Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty sexy in some of the stories. Watson gets <laughs> shot once and Holmes is sort of embracing him and saying, oh, my Watson, they never could have gotten over this if they, they killed my Watson. So um, mm-hmm. part of what I, I don't know if I even initially um, thought that this would be in the article, but um, was thinking about the, the sort of queer possibilities with a Black Watson and Holmes, which in many ways um, given conventional constructions of Black masculinity as sort of very aggressive, very heterosexual, which again is just a story, a stereotype, uh, um, yeah. started um, really having a wonderful opportunity to expand my knowledge of um, some queer of color critique, queer theory thinking about people of color um, that has been more recently published um, than some of the things I studied when I was in grad school. So that's 
opened up all kinds of um, exciting ways to teach and I think has um, offered students at CSUN, which you know is a Hispanic serving university. We have an amazingly diverse group of students in every way possible, not just racially, but sexually, you know, kind of internationally, um, gender identities, you know, age, experience, you name it. Um, but, I, but I think things like the work of Jose Esteban Munoz, thinking about disidentification, which is a, a real um, central element of the article, has been um, a productive way to bring people into queer theory who may or may not be interested in thinking about sexuality, since Munoz thinks about um, texts that you may be fascinated with and enjoy, um, either as a person of color or a queer person or a queer person of color or, you know, a trans person of color, whatever the case may be. Um, but these sort of um, texts that that don't actually want to welcome you in, don't recognize you and maybe even mean to do harm to you. Right. So mm. what what's at stake if you enjoy, I don't know, like sex in the city or something, which is mm -hmm. like a very mm -hmm. phallic feminist kind of uh, text, you know, has has also been a text that can host sort of various kind of queer identifications, but nonetheless is has been a text um, that, you know, excludes in certain ways, um, you know, a certain kind of queer possibilities, certainly excluded people of color. They're trying to mm -hmm. sort of remedy that, as I understand. Yeah. In the new season, yeah. though, I've, from what I've heard, it hasn't worked out too well. I haven't had a chance to see that. But yeah. um, just as kind of pulling an example out of um, popular culture that that Munoz is thinking about this this work of disidentification, where there's, there's mm -hmm. something that's meaningful to you about the text. You find a reflection there. You find something enabling, find part of how to build an identity mm -hmm. at the same time that you hang on to this awareness of that this is a text that um, doesn't want to acknowledge me or you know may may want to actively exclude or, or erase me um, mm -hmm. in damaging ways. So that's been important in terms of kind of being a central thread in that article where thinking about adaptations themselves um, as forms of disidentification, and particularly mm. the host of adaptations we're starting to get now of um, particularly 19th century texts. It seems like we've got our Bridgerton, yeah. um, you know, our, our Hamiltons, I guess that's 18th century. <laughs> Look at that, outside of the 19th century. Um, but but the, the sort of host of adaptations that are going on right now where we are, you know, introducing characters of color or we're recognizing people of color who are already there and thinking about, I, I think the best Best adaptations are, you know, do a form of, of disidentification where they're not um, going to pretend that nothing was ever wrong um, and that nothing is harmful um, at the same time that they're going to try to make space um, mm -hmm. for all different kinds of lives and be joyful about that. And I think that balance is really hard to strike. So part of my argument was that I think this graphic novel, um, Watson and Holmes, A Study in Black, manages to do that, that kind of balance of... Um, recognizing, acknowledging, and critiquing white supremacy and the violence it's done, including the violence that Doyle himself did, who was not mm. a pleasant person to spend time with if you read his autobiography. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, but also um, making places a, of sort of fun and joy um, and pleasure in rewriting. And that's that's not something, I guess, and I will put a period on this, <laughs> but I feel like that's not something that, um, you know, shows like Bridgerton or, or um, musicals like Hamilton have done. And plenty of other scholars have talked about this. This is not original to me, but this sort of idea of colorblind casting where, it, you know, it's great. We're putting a lot of talented people of color on television into plays, but mm -hmm. 
what does it mean if there there is no acknowledgement of the the sort of differences in vision and experience and embodiment and you know whatever um that people have like it's it's you know like a white Sherlock Holmes is different from the black Sherlock Holmes there are just differences there you know not least in the fact that the original Sherlock Holmes could kind of um be very rude to the law um Mm -hmm. the law um right well, the law and, you know, the black Sherlock Holmes has to think about, like, he can't just right. uh, give the middle finger to the law, right? That's not yeah. how blackness works. In <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so that was a long um, response. I'm in, I'm in <laughs> future mode, but I, th- I just, I guess it's just this, this work, um, not just Munoz, but, you know, figures like C. Riley Snorton, um, Marlon Ross, um, who are in queer theory and writing um, queer of color critique have really it's it's been a joy to expand my knowledge um, from what I what I learned and studied in grad school to to now um, in a way that I think fits the scholarship I'm doing and um, the kind of teaching I want to do a little bit you know better for the moment. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that, and I love the idea of invitation and joy and and space that um, is welcoming um to readers to new readers especially those who have been historically underrepresented marginalized not considered um or or um you know as a sort of political stance taken in conjunction with deliberate choices about who is cast in a particular role especially a historical role versus colorblind casting which creates a lot of interesting debate kind of horrifying debates on one side of the spectrum. And then, um, you know, I think really thoughtful debate about what does it mean to make these choices and what does it mean to make those choices without having a politics attached to it that like understands um, the histories um, of exclusion and that kind of thing. So, um, or or that's deliberate about that understanding. Um, So yeah, I, I'm really excited to read the article in print and I recommend it for everyone else. Uh, if you are in CSUN, you can get it through our uh, library website. And if not, there's various other ways. You could probably email Dr. Byler herself and I bet she would send you a copy. <laughs> yes. I'll give you like five autograph copies. Here's Nikki Eschen-Solis. Um, Nikki, would you tell us a little bit about your formative experience with um, queering the text or how you sort of came to know the field um, and participate in it? Oh my goodness, that um, takes me back to my undergraduate honors thesis. <laughs> Same, yes. <laughs> um, that I wrote about Joe Orton's plays and Amazing. sort of the uh, relationship between queerness and women. Like as, mm-hmm. so I, my undergrad degree, I have a degree in literature and a degree in theater. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were doing a production of Joe Orton and I was writing my honors thesis about sort of the relationship between women and got mm-hmm. into um, a lot of queer theory and how, mm-hmm. um, you know, gay men sort of treat women and how that um, that sort of need to disavow mm-hmm. uh, manifested in um, this 1960s queer text. I was talking about violence and misogyny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Orton's work. So that was like my first, like not really historical research. I'm not really a historian that mm-hmm. I am a theater person. And mm-hmm. then I also research and talk about comics and a mm-hmm. lot of queer theory. 
Um, but yeah, my it's a more literary and theoretical analysis of mm-hmm. queer texts throughout history. So historians would probably hate me. <laughs> There's always that interesting whenever you're in the room with the historian or someone to whom like to the outside world they think like broadly you do the same thing like you're working with texts and time periods and you're in kind of a university setting so how different is it and then it's really interesting when you're in the room with historians where both parties are kind of like here's what I do and I feel very uncomfortable with what you do (laughs) which is so funny um well I love that kind of overview of how um your formative experience in you know a research setting uh brought in both like intersectional and interdisciplinary approaches um, to think about, um, you know, kind of big picture categories that often get treated in like binaries, right? Uh, And the way that, um, you know, kind of queer methodologies really help open up and expand those binaries to be so much more representative and inclusive and interesting. Um, So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see that formative experience translating into the work that you're doing today um, and how it's maybe informed the um, many degrees that you have and experiences teaching across um, genres, because I think just like the way that we talk about historians and kind of like literary scholars. I think there is often, there's so many points of overlap, but such disciplinary differences between um, theater um, and literary studies. And that's, and, you know, kind of like literary theory. So we'd just love to hear your thoughts about that. Um, This reminds me of, so I'm not being linear. I'm just jumping, but um, that in grad school, I read, Sandra Richards uh, writing The Absent Potential, which Mm -hmm. is uh, she's an African-American theater scholar Mm -hmm. and thinking about in reading a theater text, you also have to think about the bodies on stage and Mm -hmm. how different bodies and different actions signify differently so that there's so much more in a text Mm -hmm. when you can imagine the sort of multiplicity of bodies that could be embodying that same text. And that's not explicitly queer or queer theory at all, Mm -hmm. but it I think really informs what I do when I look at historical texts, when Mm -hmm. you're, you have to, you know, situate a little bit of what queerness looked like in a specific time period in order to read the codes of that moment. Mm -hmm. But you also have to sort of allow for um, the things that are impossible to know uh, Mm -hmm. when you're Mm -hmm. looking at a historically queer text or you're queering a historical text. Um, you have to, you know, that there is probably not documentation mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. person's particular gender or sexuality yeah. as we would recognize it today. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you have to sort of live in that possibility and potential of what could be uh, based on what you do see and what you can imagine about yeah. the things that are unwritten in terms of identity and desire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love I love that insight and the way that, you know, the process of querying a text, especially um, a historical text, requires that sort of like reading the blank spaces, reading the things that are 
implicit instead of explicit. Um, and, you know, we also talk about this broadly with archival research, which is um, we every period has its own terminology and its own language and its own codes. Um, and it's a real it's a real challenge to try to decode um, some of that terminology, even at the level of searching um, a database or something like that. And then when you're getting into actual um, historical documents, whether they're letters written between people or, you know, media from the time, um, language that would not necessarily resonate with us, but resonated with um, people in the period. Um, I love that. And I'm sure you're, you know, familiar with David Castan's work on the idea of the thinkable. So there might not have been terminology to to categorize certain ways of being, um, but it was thinkable at the time and it was livable at the time, but just not necessarily articulated using the same vocabulary that we use. So yeah. And um, there was always language, right? Mm -hmm. We can go back to ancient Greece and talk yeah. about what the language is for different accent identities. Mm -hmm. um, but that language might not have been used in polite society. Right, right. Yeah, or, or recorded in the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or recognized in yeah. the same actions and identities. Mm -hmm. So when I talk to my students and talk about thinking about queer history, mm -hmm. uh, we talk about thinking about acts, identities, desires, and perception, mm -hmm. and that those things don't always go together. Mm -hmm. And they certainly aren't the way we see them now. Right. Um, that they are very historically and socially contingent based both on time period, but also on like class and status situations. Yep. Yeah. And gender, right? That mm -hmm. historically perceptions of male queerness and female mm. queerness um, are read very differently in yeah. many time periods. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about um, how even in a given time period, the same terminology will be used differently based on the community and based on their identity um, and all sorts of, you know, kind of communities within communities and, and that sort of thing. Um, it also, you're talking really brilliantly about theater studies and how there's always the level of considering embodiment and performance and, you know, both the visual and the physical on the stage made me think of a comment that Lauren Byler brought up um, in our conversation about um, colorblind casting and the difference between um, productions on, you know, specifically film and TV series adaptations of 19th century literary works that claim to be colorblind uh, in a sort of passive way um, versus those that are really intentional and deliberate and map intersectional um, approaches to casting um, onto the way that they are portraying a given literary text. So in her question, it was sort of thinking about what's the difference between like a black and a white um, Sherlock Holmes and what does it mean to negotiate um, interactions with the law with those identities in mind and colorblind casting um, wouldn't necessarily attend to the nuances of what it means to be a black man dealing with organized law enforcement in any time period. Right. So, um, so I really like that idea of how um, sort of multidisciplinary approaches help us think about embodiment and can get us towards, um, you know, parallel readings of queering the text, 
approaching the text from different ways that really open it up for us. So that's that's awesome. Um, I wonder if you maybe want to talk a little bit about how you bring this into your own classes. You teach a lot of different classes for us. So <laughs> if there are any that stand out to you, I know you have students go to the theater, which is a big, a big part of that experience too. So yeah, anything you want to say about that? Well, when I get to teach theater, <laughs> um, yeah, that seeing different embodiments and different interpretations is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this semester, I'm, you know, right now we're reading Mansfield Park. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that obviously there is no explicitly queer representation in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I'm thinking about it, rereading it again from this perspective in this moment in my life and mm-hmm. wondering, you know, does it get us anything to think about if Fanny could be asexual, mm-hmm. right? To just yes. think about the mm-hmm. modern back, you know, that this is a fairly modern uh, concept, mm-hmm. but surely uh, a feeling that has existed across time. And so, you know, if thinking about it through that lens gets us anything different in interpreting Mm -hmm. the text. Um, And I haven't actually brought that up in class yet, but I'm thinking about it as we I love it. Yeah, I I buy that definitely. And there's there's a lot of sort of critical ink spilled over what are Fanny's desires? um, How do we categorize them? How does that relate to Austin's other characters? Or there's, you know, always the mapping onto Austin herself since she didn't conform to, you know, some of the the traditional models of of her period. Um, and there's also a lot of interesting work done and being done on Tom, the uh, her cousin, who some people read as a queer character or some people read him um, as a, you know, a disruptive figure that is queering the norms that the, the father, um, sort of brings back from Antigua. So I think there's so much to do with that novel. And that is, I think that's so interesting to bring up that methodology with that Austin text, because that tends to be the problem text. Like when you (laughs) teach it, um, to students and they have any knowledge of Austin at all, which most of them do, whether from movies or from reading, they expect like Merchant Ivory, Pride and Prejudice, romance. And that's not what you get in that novel. <laughs> so. no, but you get some really interesting, spiky things mm-hmm. and some questions and questions are sometimes more fun. Um, but this is in the context of a class that goes from 1660 to 1820. Mm-hmm. So in terms of thinking about Tom, thinking about how he sort of goes back to the restoration rake kind of, which is um, an interestingly queer figure, right? If you think through uh, the libertine concept and Mm -hmm. uh, John Wilmot. So the sort of echoes between what we talked about at the very beginning of the semester Mm -hmm. um, with Tom uh, connecting to Tom is interesting as well in terms of that um, upper class indulgence in mm-hmm. sort of everything. Right. Everything, everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I really love to, when you bring these questions and these concepts to students, many of whom have read historical literature with a clear sort of sense that before, say, 1960, Things were very sort of binary and very um, sort of, you know, normative in every way possible. And then they read a Rochester poem and 
um, their jaws at the floor in the best way possible, because it gets back to the point that you bring up that there were so many possibilities for identities and sexualities and living in the world more for privileged people than maybe for others. But um, that was very much possible and um, in the world in a way that things that many of us read in formative years don't represent at all. So it's really opening it up. Well, and that goes to my work in queer children's literature and comics. Yes. Yeah. Tell us more. <laughs> um, in, in terms of that uh, sort of failure or refusal to be explicit in um, things that are considered for children. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that is opening up now, but mm-hmm. that sense of pretending that queer identities and desires don't exist mm-hmm. in uh, certain genres of literature right. um, for the purposes of who they are for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thinking about what um, what we sort of need from mm-hmm. literature in terms of creating those you know, sort of representations and understandings. Mm-hmm. So we like to tell ourselves a narrative about queer sexuality being an adults only kind of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a lot of children's literature, there are queer desires and queer authors. Right. Um, and that there are characters that don't fit into norms and binaries mm-hmm. and that we pretend that that is not about uh, adult sexuality, but mm-hmm. in a lot of ways it connects and you've got through lines throughout mm-hmm. even the history of children's literature. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And it makes me think too of that concept of the natural and what is natural and what isn't natural and uh, it goes back to a phrase you just used, which is it's a narrative, it's a story, right? And so there's there are, and you know, unfortunately, in so many parts of the country, there are movements to ban books and to really police any sort of inclusive representation in literature, especially for young readers, and um, kind of the process of queering the text and queer theory in general is really helping situate and resist um, narratives of one type of being or one type of normativity um, and that those are not natural, those are constructed. I think that's so transformative for a lot of students when they get to that point and think like, oh, like what I learned in whatever given context in my childhood is not necessarily eternal and sacrosanct. It is uh, a product of its own moment and this this space. Um, so, you know, helping people rediscover place and belonging um, through reading is, is so important, especially for, I mean, for all readers, but I think especially for young kids um, so that they both feel at home where they are and then also um, have a love of reading and learning that follows them because we all we all need that at all phases of our lives are there any other um things you wanted to talk about in terms of your teaching your research your kind of experience um this has all been really great and i love how capacious it is in terms of the many different things you teach uh for um our department and for the college, um, but then also the many like interdisciplinary roots your own research has taken. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's a weird sort of path through academia, um, but yeah, that you know, looking at like at um, you know 
theater history, which is again, where I come from and looking at Shakespeare and Marlowe and um, then the restoration theater mm-hmm. and how much sort of fun that is in terms yeah. of its being open to mm-hmm. a wide range of sexualities and sexual attractions. Yeah, wild and wide range. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's interesting because students go through phases. Like I have, when I get to teach that, I have um, student uh, classes that are super into the comedy and mm-hmm. the, you know, sexual freedom mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the libertine concept and the um, convent of pleasure and yeah, all of those yeah. um, fun restoration um, plays that are sort of exploding the possibility of homosocial mm-hmm. relationships that mm-hmm. might be erotically charged. Yeah. Um, And so that that's a real point of sort of fun and realization Mm -hmm. um, in terms of recognizing that throughout history, there have been um, queer people and queer possibilities. Mm -hmm. So that we tell ourselves a narrative of identity and progress that um, does not that erases significant mm-hmm. parts. Uh, mostly I blame the Victorians, but um, <laughs> that erases, and uh, probably the Puritans as well. Yeah, yeah, um, they had a, a hand or two in it, yeah. <laughs> erases a lot of that um, queer history and being able to sort of find and enjoy it is mm-hmm. sort of part of the fun of reading. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I love how, your comment here brings us full circle to one of your first comments, which is about your training in theater and literary studies, looking at historical moments and then sort of being like, well, but I'm not a historian, <laughs> but it, it, you know, again, very much um, brings in um, multidisciplinary approaches um, that really cut across different um, what we would see as different departments or, or different fields of training um, to do this work, which is awesome. And I think super empowering for our students because it gives them so many possibilities, not just in the class that they're in with you um, or with you know our colleagues, but with people across the university. They, they can do this work, not just even in a humanities class, but like in an engineering class thinking about design or like in, um, you know, in a STEM class thinking about like access and, and how we gauge like the normative body or something like that. So, and I mean, that's how I got through undergraduate was Mm -hmm. taking uh, literature classes and writing about what was queer or what was theatrical Mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. Uh, So in sort of all of the periods of literature, um, is finding that, you know, sense of spark of what's exciting and where there's, again, possibility, right? Mm -hmm. That um, querying history or querying the archive isn't about definitive answers. They're fun when you find them, but it's Mm -hmm. more about sort of finding the potential, finding those, you know, moments of tension and excitement and desire in the moments where friendship is more than friendship mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that that is enough of an answer I think for what a modern scholar can know or want to know about historical identities yeah I think that's so beautifully put
But Dr. Hall, I wonder if you would just, you know, tell us a little bit about your background and about how you came into your work just to start us off. I came of age kind of as a as a writer and, um, you know, a poet, a scholar in the 90s. So I kind of was like in this parallel moment or maybe not even parallel, but in the midst of Mm -hmm. that burgeoning field of queer studies. And I think it's important to note, like when I was a, a master's student, you know, I had professors that that first of all, uh, all papers were expected just to be close readings of a text. Mm-hmm. Um, and if <laughs> if you did anything other than that, you were just supposed to write in your handwriting, you know, because this was pre computers. Oh, yeah, yeah. you, you were just supposed to <laughs> make a note at the top of the paper saying, you know, I'm using a feminist lens uh, mm-hmm. for this paper or, you know, I'm, I'm using Marxism or you know, however you were going to look at the text, you needed to tell the professor up front because that's how. Wow. You know, that's that so it, it, Right. <laughs> that was that old change of the guard. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, I came of age of there were some classes that you had to ask permission to enter. And so I go to the office and uh, to his office and, and I asked his professor permission and you had to bring your transcripts and it was, you know, it was basically like applying for a job. And uh, he, I'm standing, he's sitting, he didn't, you know, he didn't invite me to sit. I didn't offer to sit. Mm. Um, <laughs> and what I remember is that he looked up at me uh, over top of his glasses and said, you think you're fairly smart for a woman. Oh. No. Oh <laughs> so this is the this is my history. Understand. So so from my earliest time at the university, I really felt like my position was one of resistance mm-hmm. mm. um, in the academic sphere. And then at the same time, kind of in my personal social life, I was living in a dorm where, you know, the the women in my dorm um I don't know what was going on behind the scenes, but like, you know, one day I came home from classes and, you know, Dyke was graffitied all over my, oh my God. Uh, college room door. And it, you know, it was perplexing mm-hmm. <laughs> to me because I was wondering, I mean, I didn't have this language at that time, right. but you know, what, what was I signifying? Like what, what, mm-hmm. what were they seeing? What, what codes were they reading from me? And so this whole trajectory starting in the 80s really was about it was kind of two pronged. It was discovery, but it was also resistance and really agitation mm-hmm. <laughs> and anger. So that's kind of like where, where I'm coming out of. And so then by the time I entered my doctoral program in the 90s, you know, I was first introduced to this idea of queer theory. It mm-hmm. felt like I finally felt at home. I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, mm-hmm. this this is a this is a place where you know I can take up room. Mm-hmm. You know, I can I can stretch out in this space." Mm-hmm. And and so it was important for me as as I was also working through my own identity mm-hmm. at the time to have that space for investigation and for answers, however unstable, and I think necessarily unstable, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. 
they were at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember like my very first paper in graduate school that I wrote using queer theory was actually a paper on masculinity. Mm-hmm. And it, the paper was called Unmasking Masculinity. And I was looking at queer noir. Mm-hmm. Oh, amazing. And it, I, I just can't tell you the thrill. Like it was, it was a space that was so exciting to me in the way that other kind of modes of, of thinking didn't turn me on, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, like queer theory really turned me on to, to myself and to a way of thinking that I didn't have an answer for before, because it's kind of like that scene in the matrix, right? Like I was searching, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so that's, yeah, that's that's how I kind of fell into the space. And then once I began reading and and, and realized the power of queer, I, I started kind of like pushing in all kinds of ways, mm-hmm. both in my scholarly work, but most aggressively in in my poetry and my creative work. Yeah, no, I definitely see that happening across uh, Swimming the Witch. Uh, it's such a pushback, especially the kind of female embodiment that's going on. What I'm really interested in, though, is where cripping the text and queering the text sort of started to come up for you um, and become an intersection that you were really focused on, because I do see that recurring a lot in your work. You know, again, it's it's interesting because at, at that time, um, when the the bulk of this text was was written in the '90s, I had only felt at home or been welcomed into or kind of entered the space of of queer, and it wasn't at that time. Uh, it wasn't until much later that I was introduced to disability studies, and it was only after the fact that I realized that queering and cripping were you know were these lovers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm in in my book and again i was like an, in, engaging in work that i didn't have the formalized theoretical groundwork for but mm-hmm. felt that i was doing something important for me because i think you know poetry i, I think it's like, i think it's saeed jones who said this originally but that that poetry is inherently queer yes mm-hmm and I think that in that engagement, that kind of, you know, even of all of the genres in creative writing, poetry still sits in the margins, mm-hmm. you know, of that. Because we, what we tend to center really are the traditional prose, the ideas of, you know, the novel. And of course, there, there's so much work troubling the idea of the novel. I'm not saying there, there isn't, but it's still kind of like the command center of writing. When, when you think of writer, you really think narrative. Mm-hmm. And and so poetry and maybe less so playwriting because that exists more in the public realm than still poetry does. But but certainly poetry is a, is a is a queer space already. And then adding to that this idea of a crip poetics, I feel with myself as kind of like recognizing my outlier body and my outlier mind in my outlier. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> in my outlier genre, <laughs> <laughs> that poetry in the queer crip kind of realm of it, I think is a space where I get to talk back, mm-hmm. right? And I am individuated, right? Even fluidly. Mm-hmm. So, 
And I, I think that that's important. So, so the idea of cripping didn't come at the time that the book was being written, but was recognized after the fact, after the the growth, the burgeoning of you know a disability studies, and then the idea of a, a crip identity, which is e- equivalent. I think we should probably, I don't know how how familiar people are, but you know, but to create that partnership between a queer identity and a crip identity in that position of of resistance and understanding that these kinds of poetics, I think, I mean, to, to my mind, and I think this is true of Swimming the Witch, I mean, even in the title, kind of standing between the sacred and the profane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm not I sure think, if I answered your question. No, you absolutely did. I think for familiarity's sake, though, it would be helpful if we, um, you know, many people are familiar with queer theory, um, but I think it would be helpful to talk about what it means to crypt the text for those who are unfamiliar with the term. Do you mind explaining that just briefly? So cripping a text does a lot of things, right? In many ways, it's doing the same thing that queering a text does and that it it creates this position of power, of pushback, of resistance, of of a kind of transformative power, mm. I think. Mm-hmm. But, you know, cripping a text is kind of, even if we think about it in a, in a Foucaultian sense or in a, a Deleucigatarian sense, in this idea of the body without organs, right? And that there is a system that is uh, a priori, right? It just exists. Mm-hmm. And that a cripping the text p- pushes back on that embodiment, right? Pushes back on that system that would seek to to regulate a body that would seek to establish or police the gaze right and and so thompson talks about uh, stigma management right mm-hmm. and so in a crypt text you know i am a hairless woman mm-hmm. a hairless queer woman a hairless queer woman writing poetry mm-hmm. and so a crypt text allows me to kind of perform the resistance to stigma management, which means like I'm not responsible mm-hmm. to make you feel better about my difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think that it's important for me to put you in that place of discomfort. Mm-hmm. And I do that in the text through centering my body as different mm-hmm. Centering, you know, centering my hairlessness, centering illness, mm-hmm. centering queerness, and to kind of like resist that gaze of pity, mm-hmm. right? Um, where you take pride in it. Mm-hmm. Even, I think, even struggle. When you were speaking of Swimming the Witch, the first poem that I thought of as you were kind of explaining all of that was Nocturne for the Dying which you've got on page seven. And I, I feel like that's exactly what's going on. It's the centering of the sick body, but also with this kind of like layered desire that turns away from the idea of desexualizing the sick body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered if maybe you could even just like speak to a little bit about what's going on in that poem, because I think it's very prominent. And you you were saying that it was before you had the theoretical knowledge, but it just seems so evident in this poem. Do you have anything in response to that? Yeah, I think that in this piece, there was, like, I think at the heart of this is this idea of pity. Mm-hmm. And 
I was aware of that kind of power structure, right? Because in a crip poetics or in disability poetics, you know, that notion of pity, right? This is like that, that whole history of like the, the, um, the telethons, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so the, the way that we came from a culture where the idea of the disabled body or the, the, you know, the crippled body, um, the marked body was a site of, of shame and a site of pity. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I needed to speak to that directly, mm-hmm. you know, like I, to, to trouble the notion of, of illness and to trouble the notion of like, you know, what a terrible, terrible thing, you know, how, how awful to, mm-hmm. to how awful to, to have cancer, how awful to be dying and yes, but no, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's a thing, it's a relationship, a parasite that we cannot discard. I love that line. Yeah, I was just looking at yeah. that. Yeah. Yep. Leilani, could we ask you to read the poem for us? Yeah. A nocturne for the dying. We met as the blind do, disregarding sight, unfortunate first appearances, as if one of us had been a sparrow without wings dragged in from play. Do I need to revise this song without pity? Did pity come to us or walk with us, ride on our backs? Parasite we cannot discard. You pulled your hind legs through darkness, body bare as my own. Even hair forsakes the sick. And I lurched mid-traffic, soiled with the past. Cars coursed like blood about us. No hesitation at our presence. That woman, that dog. And neither of us had the energy for anger or fear. That's why we made it this far. Like early cancer, an unassuming, as unassuming as headache or afternoon nosebleed, no one thought to remove us. And in the metastatic dark, we clung to each other and grew. Wow. So, yeah. So when you, and, and to, to, again, I didn't know at the time that I, mm-hmm. I you know, I didn't, I, I had not been turned on to disability poetics, disability studies, even um, I was familiar with with Goffman's, you know, notion of the soiled identity, though. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that this is tro- uh, kind of like troubling that notion mm. of the soiled identity. We grow in it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like like the, like to equate one's self in a positive light with a, with a cancer mm-hmm. is, you know, cripping the text. Mm-hmm. But in the same way, it's it's also that queer positioning, right? right. Um, it's that queer crip space of the atypical viewpoint. And this idea also, and I go back to this delusigatarian idea of potentiality of this, you know, always becoming. And I, I think that that kind of instability there is important to me, especially the idea, the kind of irony of 
power out of what would typically be read as a powerlessness position. Yeah, even even to just sort of subvert the idea of normative pity as the parasite alongside the sickness is is very powerful to me. I think another one that I really wanted to bring up with you that just kind of like spoke to me as I was thumbing through the pages last night uh, is the poem Utility on page 25 and where I really see the kind of queer intersections coming off with this notion of, you know, the woman without hands. And I wonder if, you know, maybe not in such a dramatic sense or such a central sense as Nocturne for Dying, I wonder if we could speak to utility a little bit and if, if you know, I'm reading that correctly and seeing that as having the same kind of effect. Yeah, I think you're right. So this is actually, um, and I should have put this in the notes of this of this book, but I didn't at the time. This is an ekphrastic poem. And I was living in Peru at the time. I had taken a group of students to an art gallery and we each picked a painting and we sat in front of it and we just wrote, you know? Mm-hmm. And so this is what came out of that work or that moment with, with my class. When you're searching for an identity, right? And you feel yourself questioning, right? Yeah. And you allow, I think one of the beautiful things about poetry, and again, I think that this is why it, you know, p- poetry is inherently queer is, you know, that it, it allows us to in- engage in that, you know, a dance of, of identity and to, to imagine sp- spaces otherwise. Mm-hmm. The, the, this poem kind of like was that kind of awakening for me mm. and that I wanted, I found myself being and, and again like and poetry doesn't poetry isn't you know like a, a thesis project right, right? <laughs> poetry <laughs> poetry is something that you have to risk yourself as you're in the mode of making mm. right so it's not that kind of like phallocentric linear mm. thinking right but elliptical and here i think you know it's strikingly feminine mm-hmm. journeying and in the journeying finding power and i think that mm-hmm. to you know maybe we could talk about that maybe this poem is um are you guys familiar with the article uh carrie sandall's article queering the crip and cripping the queer i am not it's such no. a good, it's yeah. such a good piece. Um, it's really, it's about performance artists, but mm-hmm. excuse me, but um, it, it is looking at ways of this kind of conversation to see in a, in a text. Well, even like to think about it in terms of Butler, doesn't she say something like this queerness is the site of, of collective contestation. Mm-hmm. It's somewhere in there. She's like talks about um, futural imaginings. And I think that that's really what's happening in this poem, this kind of futurity that that I'm interested in, um, that that finds utility in in multiple 
ways. And this is a, it's a sexy poem. Yeah, no, I definitely picked up on that. Um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> and, and I think it's another, like I, I spend, and even in my current work, I'm kind of also interested in like queering faith. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, having a, as a, a, a preacher's daughter that I am <laughs> <laughs> having, uh, having swum more than a few times naked in a baptismal, um, <laughs> I am interested in that space, as I said earlier, between the sacred and the profane, mm-hmm. um, and bringing, like kind of marrying them in a very queer way. Mm-hmm. Not keeping them distant, but actually bringing them together. And and so I think that this piece does that. No, I that was a great answer. Thank yeah. you so much. Um, you know, for the, the sake of time, I do want to go into, because I know in our correspondences, we talked about final notes. And I'm really kind of obsessed with this idea of replacing the hydrogen bomb with the discourse of bikini. <laughs> Um, and what that does for the poem. And I wondered if you could like specifically, I mean, speak to the poem itself, mm-hmm. but I'm really interested in that one part in which, you know, the female body almost becomes weaponized. Yeah. And I'm loving that. <laughs> and I really just want to dig in deeper into like kind of where that situates for queer theory for you as well, because like, oh my God, what a point of reclamation and what a point of ownership. Yeah. You know, this was this was a really exciting poem to write, and I wrote it. I have such a vivid memory of writing this poem. I lived in a treehouse <laughs> <laughs> uh, at this time when I was writing this poem next to the the Bowie River in Mississippi on on six acres of land in solitude, and every morning I would swim in the river that ran by my treehouse. The whole world at that moment felt rife with potential. And I felt very radical at Mm. the time. Uh, Just as a kind of correlation, at the time I was writing this poem, I was also performing in the vagina monologues. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Yeah, I was super cool. I was the angry vagina. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I feel like that's going to be the opening of this podcast, that clip. Just that's the clip. I was the angry vagina and into the readings. (laughs) Yeah, it was it was a crazy time. And also understand, I think it's important. I mean, just a little like biographical historical moment that this poem was written in the 90s in Mississippi Mm-hmm. And, you know, during, you know, as I said, like, during the time that I was, um, you know, practicing for my performance in the vagina monologues and they were they were terrific. There were protests, you know, th- it was seen um, like t- terribly profane what we were doing, considered obscene. There were there were little um, like I shouldn't say little. There were you know groups of people with signs picketing outside of the performance. We had police you know wow yeah it was a really different moment it was a very different moment so I kind of feel like today maybe this is I don't know maybe you guys can maybe Jen you can comment if you think this is radical today but I (laughs) I can tell you I can tell you in the 90s this poem was incredibly radical Mm -hmm. 
I I still think it's pretty radical. I don't know. As somebody, you know, who picked it up, oh God, however many years later and still finds relevance in that that kind of change in discourse. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm very curious though, why the Neruda preface? Why, why the Neruda, you know, I, that's just again, biographical. I, you know, I was reading so much Neruda at the time in the original, in doctoral programs, you know, we, you have to have um, two foreign languages, at least I did back in, back in the day. Right, right. Well, I think, no, I think you still do. (laughs) And, uh, and so I was reading, um, and I had just come from living in Peru and um, this, this particular poem in terms of its idea of loss, like the idea of death. And I wanted there to be this kind of a, a, a queer Eve moment. Mm. I didn't uh, do that. I kept it in the original, but it was this, uh, this idea of time and loss and suffering that I wanted the poem to speak back to that moment of, you know, losing this person and wanting very much to save her, you know, in a very queer way. Yeah. And in a very, and I mean, I still see in in a very radical way. I don't think that many poems that discuss loss kind of go into that, just the, like the violence and the haptic sense that you feel. And that's why I still think it speaks to today, the way that you kind of started off with that. Again, the, the hydrogen bomb is the bikini and just that idea of, destruction that kind of follows through and becomes so much softer as we end you know i haven't heard from joyce in days but it's okay i will suddenly proclaim spring to save her i'll give her one of my ribs welcome her back It, it becomes so tender and restorative yeah and i just think it's beautiful the way that it kind of like tapers from that from this kind of explosion um into that end line but um i i do i do want to give time for your new work too because i'm really fascinated with the way that the concept of um cripping the body comes up with motherhood yeah and you know i think that's what a what a beautiful intersection right um of womanhood and this study um so could we could we turn to your your new piece yeah. So and I, th- I think I would love a reading of that one. So, yeah. So this comes from a much longer work that is, um, again, even troubling notions of uh, genre itself. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's right now it's the form is so unstable. Like I don't even I can't even put <laughs> <laughs> um, it's kind of moving between lyric memoir and poetry, kind of like de- destabilizing those spaces. It's it's a, a, a work that explores motherhood through a queer crip lens. And also I'm interested in the idea of possibly queering shame yeah. in, in this text. So that's something that we can chat about for a second. But this excerpt that I'm reading was published separately as a, so I kind of like made it as a, I don't know, like a self-sufficient poem as an excerpt, but that's, that's the, the way it, it currently reads um, in its published form. Okay. And so this poem is about 
inducing the milk. So I didn't give birth to my son. And the the shame, I kind of like, this book really tries to explore the shame of of that motherhood of, of hiring, you know, another woman's body. It's like, I'm, I'm even ashamed to have the conversation at this point, but I'm, I'm, try, I'm really trying to explore the stakes of that shame and that that contract, that exchange and the tenderness, you know, between women is very complicated, <laughs> but I, yeah. and I think it's necessarily so. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a fine line with, you know, the rest of the, the themes of your work, right. Of like the woman's body as utility, but also the woman's body as a vessel for tenderness. And I, I see that conflict going yeah. on. And I don't like part of me, like, I feel like part of me, there is a part of me that wants to resolve it because I want to, you know, the answer, like I want the insight, I want the discovery, but I don't think it can have a full resolution, mm. right? Because I think that it, it's it, it, in that, it still exists in that queer space, right? And that it's, it's necessarily unstable. And I can't, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to like really nail it down. And I think it might be even problematic to try to nail it down. But again, like I'm I, right now, I'm just journeying. You know, like I'm in the midst of it and I don't know where that, where I'll end up. Like, yeah, you know, what, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, I, to, to that end, I, do you need to nail it down if you are encompassing so many sides of it, you know, giving sort of that persona to shame and, and letting it explore itself. I think, I think that's doing a lot of work actually. So I, I do kind of want to turn back, you know, to yeah. what you were saying about, how this poem complicates that and how this poem queers shame. And I wonder if you would, you know, give us one more reading before we just kind yeah. of wrap it up to talk about this, this piece here. Yeah. So inducing the milk, New Delhi, India. Son, we had come for your birth, flown miles across the world to the small birthing hospital filled with women in delivery, the surrogate. Yes. Bring her here to the poem, poem that she is, Sanju, meaning sweet, the woman who carried you, reclining my hand on her belly. Outside the difficult heat, gluttonous monsoon, July spilled into the streets, the great rush of water amniotic, and I howled to think of you, my love so great. I'd kiss even your shadow. And then you were here. My boy, my fat grub, my magnolia blossom, my impossible child. Your mouth's first suck on the pink star of my nipple, the thread of milk, the string light pulled from my breast. But no, say it. Say it here. There was no milk. This is the poem granting me fiction while I travel for the truth. Question. What is the truth, mother? Answer. The truth is, son, I put your mouth to my empty breast. The truth is, in your first hunger, I fed you a lie. The truth, son, is an angry stranger we come to love. The truth comes loping down the street, knife in hand, and we open our door anyway. 
I am sorry. The nurse handed you to me, your dark hair still wet, your mouth in the midst of apostrophe, as in, O hunger, O mother, do not forsake me. And I could do nothing else but sit in the small space of that doorless supply closet where they put me, literally no room yet available for us. My bare backbone pressed against the metal chair, a thin linen cloth draped over us, and give you nothing except the flesh of my breast in your mouth and the promise of my love. And you took it. Blooming in your hunger, the pull of your suck, your tight latch. Perfect, they said. Then the small clear tube the nurse guided there snuck into the corner of your pressed lips like a rescue rope dropped into a well. And then the milk came, taped to my breastbone in a bag. The beautiful deception, the gospel of this sinner. My gospel, son, God, spell, a rendering, a mistaken translation from the Latin Evangelium, good tidings. It is written, the mistake was very natural, to confuse good and God. So God, plus spell, as in discourse or story, as in meaningful fiction, as in good milk, God's milk, as in please suckle this truth, this ineffable truth. I am only learning the God that I am. Years before, I watched another woman become God, the bucking of it all. Her freckled face flushed red as dawn, her husband a pillar of silence, all that he was holding up. And we can't know the extent of it, his atomic calm, her bridled pain. And when their son came, lifted through the opened well of her body, they placed him on her rubbed him until his angry pink shone like quartz against her, and he drank. Mother and son's eyes lit with the spell of it. And us, son, we were swept in the thrall of each other, in the thrall of shared dream of milk and tenderness, your world so small, the distance of an arm, of your face to mine. And we practiced your cry, then your mouth on my breast, your father running with the medical tube and the small bag of milk, that sweet lie I'd taped to my chest, threading the tube secretly past the nipple. Each hour again, the tube, the milk, the tape, the sweet lie, until my nipples swelled and broke like raspberries, until my skin under the tape boiled with anger, until my body did your bidding, son, until the God in me recognized the God in you and answered in milk, my milk.
finally, the vibrating liquid string of light eternal. That was amazing. Your reading voice always gets me. Oh, thank you. Um, wow. Um, so what, what strikes me the most, I think, and just in putting, you know, your, your older collection in conversation with this one, right. Is the, the move away from pity to shame and how it's shame that embodies us and, and really frustrates us and bothers us the most, I think. I mean, I think pity is a very strong external force. Um, and I really love the notion of God's spell and gospel and, and just kind of what you're doing there with that, that wording and even saying, I am only learning the God that I am. So I think that doing two things here, one, again, is I'm interested in queering shame. I mean, so, so shame is uh, as political as it is personal, right? right? Insofar right. as at its core, it kind of denotes a power struggle, right? You can't have shame if, if with you know equals, right? Shame or shame shame arrives in this territory of the policed and the policing power of authority, right? And so mm. so so shame spotlights this inherent inequality, this inherent lack of power. But in queering shame, I think, uh, reclaims that power, and so. In this collection, I'm really interested in troubling that unstable space of shame. Similar way that I want to trouble this notion of faith, that I am kind of getting at subverting these expectations of uh that heteronormative, you know, Judeo-Christian narrative to deconstruct gospel, literally. Yeah, yeah. And literally. That's, yeah, that's, I think, why I was so drawn to that piece is shame was invited in for renaming, for, you know, this kind of fitting into the gospel and, and this redesign of, you know, my God recognizing your God. That was just beautiful oh thank yeah. you i feel it makes me think um do you are you familiar with miss uh, stormy de la Ver I, I can't do the french la la, la Verde. I, um, I am not but i would love to know more so it, it was would you you know the work of diane arbus yes the, that, yeah. that i'm familiar with yeah yes. yeah so Di this was this was one of the individuals that diane arbus um photographed and oh, okay. yeah, and and Stormy was um, notoriously left out of Harper's Bazaar project, which published Diane, a Diane Arbus collection. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was from um, Arbus's full circle collection and Harper's Bazaar. This was this, this was in the 60s um, or very, very early 60s. And Harper's Bazaar like took one look at this picture of Stormy. The title of uh, that Arbus gives the the photograph is Miss uh, it's Miss Storme Miss Storme de la Vier Miss <laughs> Miss Storme de la Verie, uh the lady who appears to be a gentleman. Mm. The image eventually gets 
a year later gets picked up in Infinity magazine, but there was an interview with Stormy and they said of, um, I'm not going to assume, uh, I'm not going to assume pronouns there. I'm not sure. Um, I'm looking back in time and I don't know that it, they is always safe. Yeah. 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 And, and so they said, um, you know, I am slightly out of context and most at home there. Uh. And that's kind of how I feel like that. That's the, the the premise that I feel like I'm inhabiting right now. Uh, you know, to be out of context and most at home there, um, you know, in, in this, in this collection. So, um, you know, a, a queer disabled woman um, who kind of re re also is in you know, a battle with the body to induce, you know, lactation. Right. <laughs> like to, to, you know, to, to, to will the body to do a thing that, you know, <laughs> that it can, could interestingly do. I mean, that's just fascinating. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, that you can kind of, you know, uh, trick you know, I don't know. Is it, should I even say that? Trick the body? I, I think that's what is kind of happening, you know? right? Is it's sort of that that agreement or that promise that you're talking about in the poem, but I think you can trick the body. And I think a lot of what we have been talking about is like the fine line of the like limits or the limitlessness of the body. Um, right. So, and, and, I th and I think like inducing the milk like just, you know, lactation, inducing lactation is a, is a queering, you know, is also a queering of the body. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, there's a kind of like the, 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 the body may be perceived, you know, as a site of, of disobedience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we're wrapped back into that notion of utility again, then we're just cycling through. Yeah. Yeah. Very, uh, very insightful. So I guess, you know, because I don't want to, one, take up too much more of your time or have this go crazy long. Um, I guess, you know, without giving too much away about what you're working on, because I know, you know, the process of shopping that or w whatever you need to do to sort of build up that presence. Um, how How is what you're, where, or where you're situated right now, as you say, out of context, but comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, how is that sort of informing the rest of your work that you're, you know, you've still got very much in process? Um, is it is it more of an exploration of this binary of limit and limitless? Is it kind of returning into, you know, queering the the female, the the sickly body, or is it just going to be kind of an explosion of all of this? It's threaded. Okay. Uh, right now, um, I'm threading it. And in the background, um, as the title indicates, so monsoon bodies is already a kind of unruliness. Right. right? But it's I like that I, I like the idea of a monsoon body because it's a natural unruliness also. Yeah. Which is a paradox. You know, <laughs> I think that there's like that you you would think that there's a kind of order um in nature, right? There's that um, 
there's that who was it James who said that that the you know that the uh, that the world is order incarnate right and you mm. must put yourself in line with that order but this that this project actually res- resists that and I'm like no like there's there's the you know the the disorder of the order and um, so the my son was born uh, it just so happens in the midst of the largest blackout in the history of the world <laughs> oh. <laughs> because of the monsoon. <laughs> and so this text also it's, it's, there's, there's so many threads going on. So it's also, we didn't even talk about the, this kind of like um, eco lens that's also going on in the book. Um, and that, so right now research, I'm doing research in, um, in monsoons basically in climate (laughs) um as you know these kinds of um you know disruptors um and how they figure metaphorically um this kind of um catastrophe um and troubling the notion of that catastrophe kind of like in you know i think you know I've, i've talk a lot about um you know marvin bell finding the the mm-hmm. you know the beautiful and the ugly right and so there's you know there was this you know this this monsoon and in this ter- this you know <laughs> all of the strife of the the blackout that happened for millions and millions of of people across you know um india um and it was, uh, you know, it was sheer chaos. Um, but then there are these, these, you know, beautiful moments. Um, and, and also to like em- em- embrace, see, see the, the turmoil, see the chaos for the fluidity um, that it also kind of promises, right? This, this troubling force. In which, in which life literally builds out of chaos. Literally. Yeah. (laughs) And, and I love, I love that. I love that, that contrast and that tension because like, I believe it's, you know, we're querying destruction. Yeah. So, you know, beyond the body, like querying chaos, which I think is probably the next step in how, how we're going to kind of articulate what it means to you know queer past the page yeah and 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 if and if a body if like if 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 to queer a text right or to queer an identity is kind of in, in not only invested right, in the in the activism but but you kind of like at the base level to just to to, to take up space yeah right to transform expand like what better than this you know this idea of the monsoon <laughs> Right. Forceful to, to, expansion, to, right? Exactly. Forceful clarification. Oh. To do that work. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and anyway, so that's, that's it's kind of like um I, f- I feel like I'm in this um right to coin the phrase, like to that this beautiful perfect storm. Um where I'm quite happy to be ju- to be jumbled about, you know, um to as as uh as uh, Keats, you know, said of um, Shakespeare, to you know, to exist in the midst of uncertainty. You know, um, I'm I'm very happy to be in this space. 
It feels comfortable I, to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that embrace is speaking to queer identity, queer population, queer theory, right? The, the need to embrace uncertainty and, and the need to embrace things that may be destructive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I so appreciate you giving us your time today. And I mean, really what a way for us to have a beautiful segue, of, <laughs> you know, queering poetry and literally queering the queer experience. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm so appreciative of you and I'm so appreciative of your time and your beautiful reading skills. Thank you so much. I, you know, I ad ad admire your insight and, um, kind of the, your, your elegant precision in, in your, in your thinking. Um, I appreciate you. I learned it all from you. Oh, <laughs> we are so thrilled to offer this collection that really focalizes on disruption, um, you know, through inter interdisciplinary voices that come together to depict what agency within the text looks like, what subversion mm -hmm. looks like and what it truly means to queer the page. Thank you for being with us today, and we'll look forward to more conversations in this podcast series. I'm Jen Sams. <laughs> and I'm Danielle Spratt. Thanks for listening. Thanks.